turn to Psalms. I'm going to let you know where we're going to be in just a moment. Psalm, obviously we're going to spend about five to six weeks. Summer in the Psalms, I wanted to give you kind of a preview this Father's Day of what's to come maybe deep into August. We have VBS kind of right in the middle of the summer. So those, there's no Sunday school, those particular Sundays, those bookends. But post Summer in the Psalms, we're going to be in the book of Galatians. Okay, so the book of Galatians, that's going to be a great uh, complement to, to the study of Hebrews, right? This principle of justification by faith and faith alone in Christ alone. So uh, great compliment. We'll walk through that side by side. Looking forward to that. If you want to spend time, refamiliarize yourself with that book over the summer, fantastic. If that kind of weaves into your reading. Go ahead and turn to Psalm chapter 2. It's not chapter, Psalm 2 rather, Psalm 2. We're going to be there. Last week we were kind of touched on Psalm 1, but really set an introduction to the Psalter just in general. And I figured it was appropriate also to, to look at Psalm 2 because these two are in tandem together. There's a relationship and special purpose even between these two Psalms here to start the Psalter. Let's go ahead and bow our head and close our eyes and ask for the Lord's help. We never want to embark upon this task in our own efforts, and that includes myself. So uh, if you will close your eyes, God, we do quickly want to run to you and express our need and our dependency before you. We ask that you would eradicate in our own heart and mind any compulsion to set about this task and this moment, this hour, even just our time together among God's people, Lord, with uh, a cavalier fashion. Lord, with any degree of self-sufficiency or arrogance or self-righteousness, we ask that you would find us to be humble in our disposition before you, that we would bow low, being mindful of whose presence we are meeting before. Lord, we are grateful that you are with us, that as we gather as your people, you are here with us. You are intervening, you are interceding, you are lavishing love and kindness, and the work of your hand is going to be carried forth throughout the whole of today in profound fashion. And Lord, we know as you do that, you're going to be rending yourself glory that you rightfully deserve. And so we look forward to that in advance. And we thank you for that work that you will do this day in advance. We pray for our next hour for Jonathan Anderson as he preaches the words, our music team. Lord, this morning would no doubt be rich. Uh, Lead us as we open your word and gladly place ourselves under it. And now as we look to Psalm 2, we thank you for this elevated view of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would convict us, challenge us, change us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, over the last several weeks, we've had several mass shootings. If you've not been living under a rock and kept up with the news, really kind of this malicious act of hatred uh, and terror that's been joined with other malicious acts of hatred, no doubt that's even taken place this week scattered throughout the rest of the world. And as we look at those headlines, it's very easy, even a casual onlooker to look and see, we live in a world that is at war, do we not? It is at war with itself, it's at war with God. And our biblical worldview tells us this, that you and I live in a world that is literally openly in opposition to God and his purposes. And in opposition in big ways, as well as small ways as well. Usually for you and I, our rebellion is less dramatic than mass shootings and waging war and taking life. We have subtle ways, right? Many people we know simply ignore God. They charge ahead in their lives with little thought of God. They raise their kids, they pay their taxes, 
They go to school and they do all of these things with little thought of following Jesus Christ, a sort of suburban rebellion, right? But it's rebellion all the same. And regardless of what form that rebellion takes, it's not always immediately obvious to us that the cause of Christ is winning in the world. Anyone ever been there? That the cause of Christ is winning in the world. And we're prompted as God's people to ask, how should I think about these things? Is my God ever going to deal with this mutiny? Is my God ever going to put down this insurrection? Well, Psalm 2 is exactly a message into that very question. That ours is a God. Our God is the God who is scheduled a day that he's not going to let rebellion go on forever. And are you thankful for that this morning? Our God is not going to allow rebellion to last forever. He's raised up a king, a king with authority over every person and every nation. He's powerfully and decisively positioned that king, set him on a throne to do what? To end the world's rebellion. And so the purpose of this psalm is to remind you and to remind me that it is not only foolish, but it's insane and futile to fight against the Lord and his anointed. If you're in Christ today, I want to encourage you. That's a tremendous message of hope and encouragement, right? You're filled with optimism that as this world that we live in, broken, undone, messy, full of all sorts of heartache and sorrow, this world that's lined up against God to be sure, ours is a savior, Christ Jesus, our king, and he will conquer all nations and all peoples. Before we read Psalm 2, if you're taking notes, really the main idea is this, that to encapsulate 12 verses, we would say this, in spite of man's repeated efforts, right, repeated attempts to resist God's kingdom, the Lord has set up his son as king over all, very important, and he invites sinners to embrace him before what? Before his wrath is unleashed. That's Psalm 2. In spite of man's repeated attempts to resist God's kingdom, the Lord has established his son as king over all and invites sinners to embrace him now before his wrath is unleashed. Let's read Psalm 2. It begins with this sort of interrogative why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. How 
blessed. And you remember last week, we'll kind of park the car there in just a moment. Let me start with a kind of a question for just as a Bible student this morning. Why place Psalm 2, which you just read, at the beginning of the Psalter? Why place Psalm 2 at the beginning of the Psalter? Think about last week, we said the Psalter, while they weren't all written during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, it was during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah that they were all compiled and put into the five books that we now have them. Why put Psalm 2 right at the start of the Psalter? Thank you for your abundant participation. Appreciate it. Can you think of any, th- any purpose that this would feel to start? What's going on with Israel right now? They're in captivity, right? How many years? 70. Sort of a long time, right? Some would say a lifetime. What else? Some of them are maybe even on their way back to Israel. And what are some of the questions that are, they're, they're pondering in their minds? Excellent, excellent. We talked about that last Sunday, right? The end of book three, Psalm 89, the very end, there's this, where is the promise that you gave to David? So you've had a long time in captivity, under the discipline and the hand of God, right? For your rebellion and rejection of him. And now you're pondering, and you need this reminder, this pronounced reminder of this right here. Imagine all the reasons why to begin the Psalter with Psalm 2. This is it. That there is a God. You're you're God. There's a king that's been appointed. You need to remember this. As you ponder this question, where is the promise that you gave to our father David or our, our king David? We also are mindful that there's a relationship between Psalm 2 and Psalm 1, right? And you can see this between how Psalm 1, how it begins and Psalm 2 ends, Psalm 1, if you'll remember, says how blessed is the man, right? Ashrei, well-being in every area of your life. And Psalm 2 ends in a very similar way, does it not? How blessed are all. And those bookends suggest that these two were to be read together as sort of an introduction to the Psalter itself. Not only that, but Psalm 2 is really beginning to unpack and continue this contrast between the righteous and the wicked, right? You have Psalm 1-1, the way of sinners, right? In Psalm 2, that that way becomes very specific and pronounced and severe. It is a violent insurrection against the God of heaven and against the king that he set in authority to rule over the world. And on the other hand, while that's the way of the wicked, this violent insurrection, you have the righteous man of Psalm 1 becomes more specific and clear to us as well. He's the son of God that's inherited a throne and God gives him complete authority over all nations. And the world hates this king. And what do the righteous do before this king? The righteous, those who are righteous, they embrace him. They love him. They do homage to the son. They kiss him. And in so doing, what does the psalmist says? Because of that, those righteous individuals are blessed. Those who take refuge in him. And so you really have two stark contrast ways to live, right? You can reject Christ, the king, and that leads to your demise, or you can take refuge in him. Only two. Let's begin to unpack Psalm 2 this morning, verse 1 through 3, because the first voice that we hear 
is really in this human drama is this voice of lost mankind crying out in defiance against God. Look at verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a feign thing? And it's a, it's a picture, right? That the entire world is in united rebellion against God's rule and they're constantly scheming vainly, sl- slandering defiantly and speaking arrogantly. And that's no shock to us, right? We just need to look around at the world around us to confirm this reality. It's very plain to us that the world is in fact raging against the king and his, against the Lord's anointed. And the psalmist is amazed that anyone would be foolish enough to fight against God and rightfully so, right? Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. I want you to note two things about this worldwide rebellion. Number one is that this uprising is not limited to a specific country or continent, is it? All nations and all peoples of the world are in this rebellion together. And the annuals of human history have proven this to be true. Mighty rulers of old from Pharaoh to Nimrod to Nebuchadnezzar to Antiochus and countless others and many others after them have all rebelled against God. Not only this, but this uprising, while it's not limited to a country or continent, it's also not limited to any social class. You have both the people as well as the leaders. The upper class as well as the lower class all have set themselves against God. What do you and I make of this? Well, this rebellion is worldwide because of this reason. It is rooted in that sin nature that we all inherited from our first parents. This uprising began long ago. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And such rebellion has been perpetually passed down ever since our first parents to the point that if you and I trek five days into the jungle, what are you going to find there? People who are raging. If you ride a crowded subway bus, subway train in New York City, if you are brave enough to do so, what are you going to find there? People who are raging. It doesn't matter where you go. The nations are raging and plotting in vain. Why? It's because this is the spiritual disposition of the world all the way until the very end when Christ will return and make all things right. Man is continuously plotting. And what is he plotting? How he is going to rebel and rebel still more. In fact, the word translated to devise or plot in vain, right? It's it's actually the same root word we have in Psalm 1, to meditate, to, to mull over, to murmur, to talk under your breath. And what a contrast, right? The wicked are murmuring and pondering and stewing about how to do what? To rebel. And what are the righteous talking about under the breath, dwelling on and murmuring on? What's praise and worship, right? Meditating upon the law of the Lord, delighting in it that we saw in Psalm 1. Polar opposites between the righteous and the wicked. And if we could see the psalmist as he's writing this, he's no doubt shining, shaking his head in disbelief, right? 
don't you know that you can't win? Don't you know that you will not have your way? Don't you know that your scheming is all for naught? And why does the psalmist shake his head in bewilderment? It's because he knows that this rebellion is destined to do what? It is destined to fail. It will not succeed. It is, he says it's vain, which is, it's empty, it's futile, it's senseless, it's pointless. Man's plan to oppose God by throwing off his sovereign control is, it's insane, it's foolish, it's silliness. And why is that the case? Well, it's, that's the case, it's senseless, foolish, insane, because it is destined to fail, and it's destined to fail because of who they're electing to rebel against. Who are they fighting, according to Psalm 2? Against two. Two individuals mentioned there, right? The Lord and his anointed. Anointed, the Hebrew word for Messiah, right? In Greek, it's Christ himself. In ancient Israel, kings and prophets and other leaders were anointed with oil to show that they were set apart by God for particular work and service. And there's one thing for you and I to keep in mind, and it's this. There's a reason why this anointed one is notated in your translation with a capital A. And why is that? It's because, make no mistake about it, this is no reference to King David. And this is no reference to an earthly king after him in Jerusalem now, the words of this psalm are simply too big for any king that's resided upon this earth. This is reserved for one king, capital K. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It could only apply to the only one king in all of human history, Christ himself. And so this is not an armed insurrection in the ancient Near East against David or the kings after him in Jerusalem. Psalm 2 describes the rebellion of the human heart against the Lord's anointed, against Christ himself. In fact, this is one of the Psalms most often quoted in reference to Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Apart from Psalm 110, the most repeated is Psalm 2. You can think about Matthew chapter 4, right? The baptism of Christ. The God the Father spoke from heaven at Jesus' baptism, and what does he say? He quotes Psalm 2-7, this is my beloved son. We've covered it in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 5, right? So it shows that Jesus is greater than the angels, greater than the priests, greater than the prophets, greater than Moses. You have in Acts 13, Paul preaches Christ's resurrection from Psalm 2 and then you have the book of Revelation, which later is going to show several, several ways in which Psalm 2 is going to be carried out and fulfilled in full. The Lord's anointed is none other than Jesus Christ himself. And since Jesus is God's son, those who rebel against him are also simultaneously rebelling against two against God the Father, right? Against the Lord and his anointed. This is who the rebellion is directed at. And it's at this juncture, you get a very interesting window into the heart of, of sin. Because the kings of the earth, the peoples of the earth, what do they want to do in verse three? They say to themselves, let us break their bonds or fetters and cast away their cords. 
What is being conveyed there? What do, the, what do unbelievers, the, the wicked, what is it that they naturally want in their hearts? As you read verse 3. To be their own God, human autonomy, right? To free themselves from God and his authority. That in and of itself is the heart of sin, a repudiation of God's rule in favor of your own rule. And this is precisely how the rest of the Bible portrays us as sinful individuals, right? The human race, whether you open Psalm 14 or Romans chapter 3, totally depraved by the effects of original sin. Let us break their bonds and fetters, cast away their cords. And have kings and leaders tried to do just that? No doubt throughout history, you read Acts chapter 4, right? The healing of the lame beggar. What does Peter say there? By Jesus Christ, in his name, you put to death. By his name, this man has been healed. Kings and leaders have always risen up against the Lord and his anointed. And the Bible is very clear. Lest your eschatology think that at some point the world's going to be getting kind of markedly better over time. That's not the case. Rebellion is going to continue all the way till the very end. And it's going to continue to that riotous rebellion is one day, Revelation 13, Revelation 17, it's going to come together in the last days. And Revelation says the kings of the earth will stand against the Lord and his anointed, who is God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know the rest of the book of Revelation and how that works out for said individuals who elect to stand against the Lord and his anointed. Now, the natural question for you and I is we read this raging and we say, yes, I can read Psalm, 1, 1 through, I mean, Psalm 2, 1 through 3, and I can say, yeah, that's still true today. It's, it's in the headlines on the newspaper. It's on the news. I, I see the raging. I see the insane scheming and plotting and devising a, a vain thing. Rebelling against God, I see this. And the natural question for us is, okay, while I see this, I need to ask as a follower of him, as the one who loves him and trusts him and seeks refuge in him, where is my God in all of this? What is God going to do about this mutiny? Well, God responds in verses four through six. And the reason that rebellion is a vain thing is because when God responds, no one can stand as you see the indignation of God. Verses four through six, in spite of man's sinful revolt against heaven, God is remaining the unrivaled sovereign Lord and it's his, the second voice that we hear in this Psalm is his own. And how do we hear his voice? He laughs at man's feeble attempts to thwart his eternal purposes. Verse four, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord, Adonai, right? The sovereign Lord who has ultimate authority, ultimate rule and power. The Lord, Adonai, scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion my holy mountain. God laughs. You know what this is a contrast to? Individuals today often, I think sometimes in their mind, at least via their behavior, 
at least via practice in their actions, almost seem to signify that they view God as doing what? He's up there and he's wringing his hands. And he's filled with consternation and concern and bewilderment. And then he calls in his generals and he kind of hurries to his fortified bunker. And that is not Psalm 2, verse 4, is it? He sits in the heavens and laughs. It's the only place in the Bible where God is described as laughing. It's because this is when a creature elects to shake his fist at its creator, right? Romans chapter 1, exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship the creature rather than creator. It is so utterly ridiculous, and it is, that laughter is the only response. And God laughs because this uprising doesn't threaten him, does it? The nations rage, but God doesn't have to rage. He doesn't have to set himself up or take his stand like the kings of the earth do. He doesn't have to take counsel with anyone. He doesn't need to plot. In fact, our God, Psalm 2, verse 4, he doesn't even bother standing up. He sits in the heavens. Isaiah 40, 15, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. This is the grandeur of our God. He simply sits in heaven and laughs. And this laughter, I need you to be very clear about this. This is not a laughter of humor, okay? This is not God finding the raging funny. This is laughter which is divine mockery. He is humiliating his enemies. He scoffs at them, it says. He holds them in derision. Our God is not laughing because the world's rebellion is some kind of silly joke to him. Our God takes sin and rebellion very, very seriously. In our disobedient, we spit upon his glory. We drag his name through the mud. We harm men and women who are made in his image. He takes that offense very, very seriously. And so part of God's triumph is his holding up his enemies up to public disgrace, mocking them, scoffing at them, scoffing at their puny efforts to revolt against him. And nowhere was this mocking louder. Think about it for a moment. Nowhere was this mocking and scoffing louder than when? Think New Testament. Think Gospels. What's that? At the cross, right? We covered it in the in book of Colossians. Colossians 2.15, right? He disarmed the rulers and authorities, having to put them to open shame by triumphing over them through the cross. And the idea there, remember our pastor talked about it, it was a public procession, leading his enemies behind in humiliation, putting them to open shame. This is the kind of mocking. He's mocking his enemies Is part of his judgment upon sinners. And then this divine laughter turns to something radically, something different. It turns to fury. Because not only does he laugh, but he also proceeds to speak. With all the nations gathered for war, God merely opens his mouth. Verse 5, then he will speak to them in his anger. That word there, speak, is to literally rebuke. His absolute holiness moves him 
to call them out and to judge sinners. And judgment from the Lord is a terrifying thing, is it not? You think of Revelation chapter 6, I believe, right? Literally in the last days, men and women are going to cry for the rocks of the mountains to follow them, right? To hide them from the great day of wrath and from the wrath of the Lamb. For his wrath has come and who is able to stand? He will speak to them in his fury. And notice these burning words of indignation. In response to man's insane attempt to overturn God's eternal plans, our God thunders from heaven and says, but as for me, as you rage, as you plot, as you scheme, you need to know this, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Upon Zion, my holy mountain is a way for God to reiterate who is in fact on the throne both in the earth as well as in heaven. And the one on the throne is who? It's his son. And after he, the son, completed his rescue mission of which he was sent to accomplish, after he completed that mission, he returned to that throne at the right hand of the father. There he resides until one day he will do what? He will come back and he will return again to the earth and he will also in that moment and hour be gloriously enthroned during this 1,000 year reign on the earth from Jerusalem, right? Revelation chapter 20. I think this, here's the takeaway for you and I. God's word stands firm in spite of the nation's hate. And you need to be mindful of that this morning. As you read the news, as you grow weary of headline after headline, of broken expression after broken expression, God's word stands firm in spite of the nation's hate. Their gathered strength, their wisdom of their council chambers, their plotting, their scheming, their rage doesn't alter the fact that God has established his king with his word. God's word still stands. Love this as you read throughout the Old Testament. You know this even just from kind of the Recalling of redemptive history, right? We have Pharaoh in the Old Testament who tried to do what? To literally destroy God's people. And instead, he actually ends up caring for Moses and educating him in his own home. Love the Lord's humor and irony and providence there on display. Hamas plotted to destroy the Jews and ends up being hung from the same gallows that he constructed to hang others from. The leaders of Israel put Jesus to death on a cross with the idea that they were setting out to destroy him. And instead, God uses that very cross to triumph over sin and to save his people. Our God has routinely proven the rage of this world and pointed out its insanity, its senselessness, its futility, its vanity. God's word still stands. And Christ, our Christ, our Savior, is still God's king by the strength of an unbreakable word. He has spoken this and made it so. I have established my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And he set Jesus Christ as king over all creation, to which we have to ask, well, what exactly does this mean? 
That's where we turn to verse 7 of Psalm 2. What does it mean for Christ to be set as and established as king? Look at verse 7 through 9. What God has decreed that his son, the Messiah, is scheduled to execute. And this leads us to a wonderful inheritance from the Father. And in this third section of the psalm, we have now the Messiah speaking for himself. We had kind of the voice of the world. We had God himself. And now we have kind of the Messiah speaking, a different voice. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. What's going on here? What does it mean for the Lord to be established as king? What's happening here is that Jesus, the king, is speaking himself. And what's going on is that when you had an army officer arrive to take new command, he would bring orders with him to show that he had the right and the authority to take over, to be in charge. And if a man elected to take over without orders, that man's rule and reign in charge was illegitimate. He was acting on his own. And so what Christ is doing is repeating God's decree to prove what? To prove that he has the legitimate right to rule upon this throne and to rule over the world. As he pronounces his identity and his authority, his even his destiny, as we will see here in just a moment. Verse 7, I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. You are my son. And as a son, he's close to God. He knows God. He knows God as a son knows his father, right? Matthew eleven twenty seven. He's subordinate to God. He obeys as his son obeys the father. We know this from Philippians 2, 5 through 8. He was obedient even to the point of death on a cross. And because he is God's son, he is the legitimate heir to the throne. Today I have begotten you. Now, Northlake, this doesn't suggest that the second member of the Godhead was somehow a created being, despite what our Jehovah's Witness neighbors might say. Today I've begotten you. It's not that Christ was a created being. It's simply pointing, and we've covered this in the book of Colossians, right? Chapter 1. It's pointing to his incarnation, his resurrection. We see that in Acts 13, 33, in Hebrews 1, 5. God's divine decree was fulfilled in Christ's incarnation, and it became the basis upon which the Father said to the Son, verse 8, read it now, Psalm 2, ask of me on the basis of this then ask of me I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession because of your submission to the father's will God will and has bestowed a rich legacy upon the son his God decreed destiny entailed a vast inheritance that's now being progressively realized, but it's going to be eventually fully transferred to him during his millennial kingdom that we see even in the book of Revelation. As the Father will give the Son the very ends of the earth as an inheritance. Now, 
That has several layers of meaning there. The very ends of the earth as an inheritance. Number one, it would be this. It conveys that from among all nations, a large host of people that God, our Father, previously gave the Son, His anointed, long in eternity past, God is going to give said individuals to the, His anointed as a possession. He will rule over them. He will enjoy them perfectly. They will be his people. Such will be in his, his, his inheritance. But also too, not just that, not just pertaining to his people, God's chosen ones. But also when he says the very ends of the earth will be your inheritance, also encapsulated in this, is that this anointed one's reign will be so supreme that he's also going to execute final judgment over his enemies. As God pronounces his authority in verse nine, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. This is part of Christ's marching orders. You shall break them with a rod of iron and shatter them like earthenware. God the Father had gave him and commissioned him with, to use whatever force necessary to subdue the world, to end the raging, and to take his inheritance. And God has charged this one to end the world's rebellion, to break and to shatter them in, in pieces. This is used of God afflicting judgment upon the unrighteous. You know it in Revelation 19.15. Let me read it for you, this kind of picture of the unrelenting wrath of God. Listen to this description of the anointed. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations. Why do the nations rage? Fast forward. He will strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. This anointed one, Christ, has the power and authority to complete the work that God had given him to do to break them and shatter them. And indeed he will. Now oftentimes when a king sets out to put down a rebellion and Christ will no doubt put down this rebellion, there will be a day when the nations will no longer rage. Oftentimes when a king sets out to send in troops to put down a rebellion, he does something else first. He can frequently send in messengers to kind of wave a, a flag of truce, right? And what happens if that rebellious province rejects the king's messengers and rejects the flag of truth? What does the king proceed to do? He uses force, right? And that's exactly what the king will do. Initially, he acts for the good of the nation with the hope that some will turn to him, that some will end the rebellion. And you see something very similar, even at the end of Psalm 2, with this invitation that's put on display. And it's really kind of now, kind of almost like the voice of, of the Spirit, kind of extending an invitation to all those on the earth. As he calls all to repent, right? He sends in troops. The flag of truce is there. The opportunity to surrender and bow is before you. Reject it, and he will come with force. Look at verse 10. 
As sinners are warned to give up their rebellion and humble themselves. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment, take warning, O judges of the earth, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Friends, this appeal is God's mercy, is it not? God's patience as he holds out his hands to a rebellious world. And he doesn't have to, but he does. And after the thunder of the iron rod and crashing potter in verse 9, we have a very gentle and very loving, very tender voice that enters in. This voice calls for individuals to be sensible, to be wise, to show discernment, to examine yourself carefully. And consider your ways as well as God's decree that he has established his king. And one way or another, you will be forced to deal with that king. You either bow the knee today or you will be broken tomorrow. And instead of resisting God, sinners are encouraged and prompted and exhorted to worship the Lord with reverence. And rejoice with trembling. That's a very mature, complex response right there. A complete turning away. From your heart of rebellion. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. You cannot rage and plot in vain simultaneously as you worship with reverence and tremble and rejoice with trembling. And no doubt when you see the terrifying power and capability of our God, that is the only natural response to convey, is it not? It's to tremble. And this newfound reverence and joy should give way to something. Verse 12, do homage to the son, literally kiss the son. A sign of humble submission as a, as a servant would come before a king, bow low, make sure that he's lower than the king. It's a signifier that you are greater than I. And proceeding to take that king's hand and proceeding to kiss his ring in loving submission. And why should we do homage to the son? Why should individuals kiss the son? It's because to, do, to refuse to do so would be quite disastrous, would it not? Loyal allegiance to Christ, this king, is required. The psalmist writes, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. Lest he become angry and you perish in the way. The choice is very, very clear from Psalm 2. It is better to bend than to be broken, is it not? God urgently calls sinners to pay homage to the Son, for his wrath may soon be kindled. And what will happen to you if you elect to do just that, if you heed that invitation? Look at how Psalm 2 ends. Remember, this is an instruction manual to experience ashray, well-being in every area of your life. You want to know where the starting place is for ashray? Is this right here. In doing homage, paying homage, kissing the sun, bowing low, surrendering to him, you are blessed. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Our only hope is to embrace Jesus Christ. Reject Christ or take refuge in him. It's always better to do the latter before he returns. 
And I want you to ponder this morning as we kind of continue, not this Sunday, but in the weeks to come and months to come, we're going to continue to unpack very slowly. It's going to be insanely rich for us, as it's always pro- already proven to be the book of Hebrews. And I want you to think, as we look at Psalm 2, how does Psalm 2 complement our study of the book of Hebrews? I'm going to let you participate here. How does Psalm 2 complement our study of the book of Hebrews? You understand the reign of the Messiah that will be unending, cannot be thwarted. What else? Okay, I love it, right? Our pastor, I think the last message, look to Christ, consider Jesus. You cannot help but do so when you read Psalm 2. Excellent. It encourages us to that end. What else? Ah, someone's been listening, right? It only further shows the superiority of Christ, which is what the book of Hebrews is all about. Excellent. Natalie. Okay, so you have Hebrews 1.5 is literally quoting Psalm 2. Excellent. What else? Let me ask you another question. How does Psalm 2 foster greater faithfulness before the Lord in your day-to-day life? How does Psalm 2 foster greater faithfulness before the Lord in your day-to-day life? It calms our heart when we ponder what's going on in the world. Okay. Calms our hearts, right? An antidote to anxiety, angst. Excellent. Calms our hearts. Why does it calm your heart? Can I ask you to? Because our confidence is in God and not in what we see. Yes. To rest in what Psalm 2 is conveying to you brings peace, right, and calm. What else? <laughs> okay. Confirms nothing. Thank you. Very Solomon-esque of you. What's that? Yeah, courage in evangelism. Excellent. Do homage to the Son, lest you perish in the way. That should be, we should be extending the same invitation. Anything else? Okay. What was that? So just being kind of washed over with gratitude. We are his, part of his inheritance, his possession. There's gratitude that comes to us, thankfulness that this is true. Excellent. Which prompts worship. Anything else? It highlights the divide between good and evil. I was talking to my son who's a and I, I asked him, I the contrast between good and evil, for sure. Those of you who have children, how does Psalm 2 minister to you? Anyone share the similar parental concerns that that I do, ever? Or am I alone? Okay, no? Psalm 2 is good, right? 
You think about well, this world that my, my kids are growing up in, which as you said, Mark, there's nothing new under the sun. Parents have been saying that for generations, right? There is a king who's been established. He will return. He will make all of this right. I also think, too, it, it's an antidote for I- idle cynicism. It, it's, it's, to th- it's, it's easy to begin to kind of ponder that, um, well, we can be full of unbelief, really, Practically speaking, as we live out this life, cynicism that, and losing sight, that this world will be made right. It almost seems the polar opposite. Like there's, there's no hope, right? Just very cynical, very, very pessimistic, very fatalistic. And we know that the end is already determined and righteousness will prevail. Wrongs will be made right, right? Every knee will bow. I don't need to cling to that cynicism. I think as well, too, just uh, sober-mindedness, to live seriously. It's easy in this life to be swept up by trivial, lesser things that do not matter, right? And when you have this kind of perspective, I have established my king. The earth is his inheritance. He will rule. He will reign. He will make all things right. It kind of puts in perspective the mundane things that I get swept up in that consume my thoughts, It prompts and compels sober-minded living, serious living, earnest living. And I think, too, as we kind of enter into the next hour, worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son. We get to manifest that and really put that on display, even as we lift him up in song here in just a moment, but also as we eagerly, on the edge of our seats, listen to his word here momentarily. My prayer is the Lord would find us kind of embodying that. Worship the Lord with reverence. Let's go ahead and ask for his help. Lord, we, <clears throat> we thank you for Psalm 2. We thank you for this message <clears throat> that you have established your king. We thank you for all the wondrous implications that that means to us, that despite man's repeated attempt to resist your kingdom, you have established your son in all his glory and splendor, and you've established him as king. Lord, we are quick to want to thank you for the mercy that you extend, that you would be patient, that you would invite sinners to embrace you now before your wrath comes in full force. You didn't have to be patient. You didn't have to be kind. You didn't have to extend grace, but yet you have in wondrous fashion through the work of your son, and we are the beneficiaries of that. We ask that you would move us by that benefit today. May we be overwhelmed by the blessed state that we enjoy of taking refuge in you. Make us cognizant of every implication of what that means for us, that we are safe and secure in your hand. We have no need to be dismayed, no reason to be bewildered or discouraged. Lord, we ask that you would lift us up. You would stand us upon the truth of your word. We ask for Jonathan as you enable him to speak with power and conviction. We ask for us even as we listen that you would find our disposition ready and eager and teachable before you and that you would have your good and perfect work among your people today. Again, we thank you for this rich morning and your wisdom you set aside for your people to gather on this day. We give you all praise and thanks now and pray this in Jesus' name, amen.